You can turn to Genesis 6, but I want you to imagine a difficult moment when you would want to escape everything and just take your favorite people. The perfect world, the perfect setting. You can make it camp in the mountains or a little shack in the desert or whatever is something of your interest. But it is you and a hand-selected group of people. Hopefully you would take some of your family. Granted, you might not take them all. But hopefully there are some family members you would want to take. Perhaps you would have some chosen friends. But it would be wonderful to eternally live at camp or in a commune. To just hide away, to cloister together, and to be us. Nobody telling us that we're stupid or ignorant or phobic or anything. And you would still find sin. Every time we go on a mountaintop retreat, we come home and we crash. And the flood is just the first of many recorded mountaintop experiences in Scripture. And they are all followed by failure until Golgotha, until the cross. Whether it's news of the Duggars a few weeks ago, and I don't mean to bash them and shame on us for delighting in the downfall of people. That is a cultural sin that we should be repentant of. Rejoicing in the humanity of others at their worst moment. But that news, or the news Friday, or anything else, only points out the same thing. We cannot escape sin. We can't escape sin by camping or climbing away from it. We can't escape sin by cloistering or communing ourselves away. We couldn't take our best friends and just be us. Sin, and not the internet, is responsible for pornography. Sin and not social media is responsible for broken relationships. Sin and not youth group is responsible for teens leaving the church. No matter what it is, it is sin and not surely many things that contribute to it. And at times, all of those other things I mentioned certainly do. But those are not the cause They are sometimes the means, but they are not the cause because sin is in our hearts and we are the problem. Be it a nation or a family or an individual. You can gather your closest family and friends. You could add chaperones. You could minimalize and remove all of media. You could maintain ultra-conservative standards and, and really pour into those close relationships. And you would still find yourself battling sin. And the rest of the flood account confirms that same truth. Our sin problem goes way beyond rebooting the system as a solution. The solution was bigger and required more than that. It was not enough to simply restart creation. And God knew that from the beginning. He wasn't surprised by the outcome of the flood that we'll see. And the verse I stopped at last week was only the first part of that verse that we read. It continued. So turn with me again to Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, 
taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. This is good. This is life stepping off of the ark, and it is practically perfect. It is restored. The verse we looked at a few weeks ago, only evil all the time, certainly has been taken care of, hasn't it? And the answer quickly is no. Verse 21 continues. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. But that was the point of the flood, wasn't it? Noah, righteous Noah, and his family were placed on a boat because certainly they couldn't have been described by that same sentence. And yet, we're going to see Noah's fall. And by the way, Noah is called blameless and righteous. (laughs) The other seven people on the ark have never had that description attached to them. Could have been true and perhaps it was not. But it is interesting that the minute God is pleased by Noah's sacrifice, the verse continues. And it indicates the ark did not solve the sin problem. This shouldn't surprise us. There's only one solution. The ark highlights that. It points us to the cross. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of, the, of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed, ti- seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And there's a beautiful promise, but it is not because Adam's family is perfect. It is because sin still exists, and Adam's family needs a promise. And there's a new covenant that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. But it is needed because sin continues. It was not yet solved. Nothing had changed. Nothing at all had changed. The family had simply been reduced. Ultimately, what you see in the flood, besides pointing to the ultimate solution... What you see in the flood is God's temporal judgment on people that had earned that judgment. That was completely accomplished. The rest of the flood does restore the earth, but it still highlights sin is the problem because the flood account, most assuredly, is not over. We'll continue. Before before we look at what I think is really the end result that we're driving at, I do want to give you a few highlights or some interesting things, some other points of interest. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 4, this is interesting to me at least. I'm sure some of you agree. Others may not appreciate this so much. But verse 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1 through 4, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. 
but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. I like this because God just endorsed tailgating. (laughs) Think about it. There's a boat. They come off. They have a barbecue. God just said you can eat the animals. Interestingly, whether they were eating animals before this or not, God had not officially in Scripture given them permission. He had said you can eat every plant or the plants. You and the animals, that's what it's for. But he's going to make a claim about life in a minute. First, though, he starts with meat being back on the menu. If you're a vegetarian, that's great. You can have your veggie platter. I am probably taking my family out for barbecue for lunch. God said we can. Post-flood, God said we can. Verse 5, it continues, and this is the more important part. For your lifeblood... Humanity, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God has God made man. He declares capital punishment. If you're against it, that is fine. I'm really not going to try to convince you of anything different. You do need to go to some points of Scripture. Romans 13 would be another one. Make sure you are are trying to handle Scripture appropriately. But God declares something that we hadn't seen with Cain. Cain took his brother's life and God protected him. But now God puts in a law that says if you or an animal takes the life of a man, it will cost a life. And the reason is because life is precious. Because life of people, not animals, is in the image of God. And we do not have the right to crush the image of God. But interestingly, it is by the taking of life that justice is found in that moment. And God endorses that. For Noah, coming off the flood, he says if there's another Cain moment, and there are hints of the garden and the fall all along through chapter 9. If another Cain moment happens, this is now the just response. This is how you are to act. So Noah, if one of your sons were to take the life of another son, then it costs him his life. Continues on. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. This, by the way, is about the only command of God that we have ever obeyed consistently. And yet, if you stop and think about it, look at our world right now and how it is countering this. I don't mean that it's wrong to only have one or two kids in your family, but it is certainly wrong for us to poke fun at people that have more. But beyond that, think of countries where there is a command to only have one. When there is a God that has said, be fruitful and multiply. No wonder our world is confused. The one command we've ever attempted at obeying, and not with the intention of obeying, even that we are countering now. Our world is lost and confused. Don't ever forget that either. Verse 8 through 17, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I 
I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. That means God's word is at stake. It's a beautiful promise. I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of my covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the, co- the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. When you see the rainbow, it's, it should remind you that God is faithful to his promises. But the flood account is not just an account of why there's beautiful, pretty colors in the sky. If you want more detail on this, because it's not what I'm looking at today, go back to Pastor Benji's Easter sermon. He talked quite a bit about the rainbow, the warrior's mighty rainbow. It's great. I'd encourage you, go find it online. But when you see a beautiful rainbow like we had last night over Santa Maria, many of you posted pictures of it, be reminded that God is always faithful to his word. Always. He makes promise after promise after promise. And unlike mankind, the Bible says, his word is true. No matter how outlandish it seems, no matter how unpopular it is labeled, his word is always true. But we're going to look today at the part of the Noah account that you probably separate from it all the time. The story isn't finished. The last verses of this account, I think, are going to make that clear. In fact, I'll just jump to the end on that to point it out. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. But it's pointing a connection to the flood. After the flood, it isn't done with Noah. His story isn't finished. His part of God's story isn't done until those verses. And what happens in between verse 17 and 28 is interesting. It is one of those awkward stories that we just don't like to talk about because it seems weird. Quite frankly, there is silliness involved in this, sinful silliness. If at any point any of the words I use, I don't think there are very many PG-13 words, are uncomfortable for you or your kids, cover their ears. But this is Scripture. So we're going to look at verse 18 through 27. Don't worry, it's not too long of a count. I won't keep you here forever. Let me just read it, and then we'll go back. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and there's a reason it points that out. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. This is a bizarre story. This is not how the flood ends when we tell it to our little kids. We stop with the rainbow and probably for good reason. What do you do with this story when a junior hire asks you about it? That's my job, by the way. And kudos to my youth staff who have been holding down the fort for me the last three weeks. Thank you very much. When you're at camp in bed and it's past 12 o'clock and some kid decides to ask a tough theological question, what do you do? Especially when that question is more nonsensical than theological. Hey, what was that? And your first response is, I don't know, and it's 12, go to bed. You're going to wake me up at 6 for some reason. It's camp, sleep in. And the, I think the answer is we do know. It's just awkward and uncomfortable, and it's not your favorite passage of all of Scripture. But go back, verse 18 and 19, there are some important things to pick up. The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father, Ham, Ham, not Ham. Ham was the father of Canaan. The reason it points out Canaan is, Canaan is going to get wronged later, I think. Canaan gets called out. He's not even involved in the story. But it points out that Ham is the father of Canaan because of Noah's big fat mouth. Canaan gets cursed because of his dad. And it points out from the beginning, they pay attention to Canaan in the story. Even though it's Ham and Noah who are the, the people involved. But it continued in verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. That verse, among others in scripture, is why you should not be a racist. It's one of the dumbest sins that exist. Not that any sin makes sense, but being racist is just stupid. It's your family. We all have the same great at however many you need to, Grandpa. It's the equivalent of looking at Christmas at one of your family members and for no reason other than the style of their hair or that they have a better or worse tan than you, Saying, I don't like you, and I will hate you forever. Not because they punched you in the face over at Thanksgiving, but because they look a little different. There is no place in Scripture or in faith for racism. It exists because of sin, but it does not exist naturally. It's God's family. It's our family. It's Noah. All people come from the same two great-grandpas, Adam and Noah. 
We have the same family tree. It just depends on which branch you're looking at at the moment, if you forget that. So if there's racism in your heart anywhere, know that God does not stand with you in it. And among other things, that's an interesting note that comes out of this final part of the flood account. Verse 20, there's a hint of Cain. Perhaps you saw it. Noah, a man of the soil. Now that's not the problem. It isn't that it was wrong to be a man of the soil. But there's an interesting parallel between this and an earlier part of Genesis. Also, a parallel in a second between the nakedness of Noah and Adam and Eve when they realize it. Verse 20, Noah, man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. He comes off the ark and he plants a vineyard. And by the way, that is not the issue. There are multiple points in Genesis where becoming drunk causes problems. But the wine itself is not. I am a teetotaler. But that is not because Noah got drunk. I don't drink for other reasons. But Noah's sin isn't that he planted a vineyard, it's that he becomes drunk in a minute. That's part of his sin. He proceeds to plant a vineyard. So now we have a tailgate and a kegger at the same time. It's a little awkward. As a Baptist, it's a little uncomfortable, I know. But Noah, man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And also, by the way, that tells you some time has taken place. I don't think this is inherently the first time Noah has sinned. He's not perfect. This is the time that Noah sinned that's going to get recorded because it's going to have an impact on history and in Genesis. Noah, man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. That is the sin. And lay uncovered inside his tent. And that's when we start to become uncomfortable. You don't need to think of Noah naked. That would be awkward. But that's the picture. Noah is uncovered. Noah is exposed. Noah is right back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve when they're trying to cover themselves, only he's too drunk to even know to be covered. But he's exposed and he is sinful. And the flood seems to have had no impact. It seems to have all been for naught because the blameless man is clearly to blame. But it doesn't stop there because now we just have some silliness. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Now real quick, I want you to think for a minute, how old is Ham? Don't answer out loud, but just think about that. The answer, by the way, is he's about 100 years old. This silliness is about 100 years old, but there is some discussion of what does this mean, and parents, you can get your hands ready for your kids' ears if you feel like you need to. It is possibly a euphemism indicating that he's watching something, something of a sexual nature. Or worse, some people argue that there is an incestuous event that takes place. There's another one I bumped into as I was studying this. I hadn't heard this before, and it is an attempt, I think, to make sense out of the curse that is going to follow because it certainly would make more sense But some wonder if there's an implication of castration. 
you have a long list of people who have many, many, many children. And from Noah, you have three. And the curse makes more sense if Ham did something to cut off his father's line. Now that said, all three of those, I don't think that's what's taking place. You'll find commentators that do, and for reason. Here's what I think is taking place, exactly what you see, exactly what you hear. Noah becomes drunk, Ham walks in, sees dad naked, goes to his two other brothers who are also about 100 years old, and giggles. It is sophomoric silliness. It is stupidity. He walks out of the tent, I think, and goes, hey, dad's naked. It is just plain dumb. And the curse doesn't make sense for a different reason. It doesn't make sense, I don't think. I think it's another part of Noah's sin. I think he overreacts. But Ham walks in, sees drunk dad naked, and acts like a 100-year-old junior hire. No offense. He giggles. He guffaws. He goes outside and he says, brothers, come look at dad. He's drunk and naked. Ha ha. And it's bizarre. This is post-flood. The evil's gone. It's one family. They're hanging out at the campground and there's nobody else around. And dad, dad plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. He's passed out because he's passed out and he's out of control. He's exposed. And by the way, their culture took being exposed much more serious than ours. Like, we can't even fathom how much different. We hang out in bikinis and bathing suits at the beach. They didn't. But Ham goes outside and he says, look at dad. And his two brothers have a righteous and honoring response. That would be another thing. This is a culture, the one reading it, where to mock your parents cost your life. It matters that you connect Scripture with Scripture. That law isn't in place at the moment, but it is in place when Genesis is being read and discussed. Moses wrote all five books. This is just earlier in the timeline as they're reading it. Here's his brother's response. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. They don't want to embarrass their dad. Dad's doing a good enough job of embarrassing himself today. And brother is being a bozo. So they take a robe, take a garment, and they awkwardly walk in backwards to cover up dad. And then they walk out. When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest had done to him, you've got you to remember he's just been drunk. That means he's hung over now. He's still not thinking straight. He's in pain. His head hurts. It's not like he sat down and said, wait a minute. I made a big mistake. 
and it cost my family, and now I've got to sit down and think about the good, compassionate, fatherly, just response, I think Noah reacts. How dare you, my son? I think that's what he does. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Cursed to my grandson. Wait. Okay, I'm assuming he's alive right now, which also tells you some time has taken place. What in the world could this kid have possibly done? And the answer is nothing. The kid did nothing. His dad did. Drunk, hung over Noah in his blameless righteousness for getting on the boat proves that sin still exists. That sin is in his heart. That sin is in his son's heart. And he condemns his grandson. I'm sure there are some answers that try to make sense of why that's okay. I don't think they're right. I think Noah's just responding. He lashes out because he's drunk. And he curses his grandson. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's a good statement. Blessed be the Lord. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. May Canaan be his slave. I don't think Noah has a righteous response. I think Noah's just showing his sinfulness. Just like Ham is showing his sinfulness and his silliness. Here's the point, though. And this is why even goofy stories, weird, awkward stories in Scripture, as crazy as they are, are worth paying attention to. It points to the need of humanity, and the ark did not meet that need. The flood and every other part of Scripture points to God and the cross as the only solution for redeeming man. The ark is not enough. The chosen line is not going to be enough except where it lands upon Christ. The nation that will be drawn out of that line, the nation of Israel, will prove it is not enough. You cannot have a perfect holy nation. There is no such thing. If you had any doubts, I'm sure you don't now. There's no such thing as a Christian nation, and there never will be apart from Christ. Not that way. It is not the solution. You look through Scripture and you see moment after moment after moment that as a mere human you would say, maybe that would take care of it. A perfect camp in the mountains at Hume has sin. A perfect church, in quotes please, a perfect church in Santa Maria called Grace fails at grace. There is no solution apart from Christ and every moment in Scripture points to that. The rainbow tells you to look to the cross. God's promise can be true and the flood won't wipe you out and whispered in there is, and look to the cross. That's the only thing that saves. No president No king, no justices, no neighborhood, no college, no family. No plan 
apart from the cross is sufficient to deal with the problem of sin. That is the point of Scripture. That is the point of the flood account. The whole flood account. We broke the world at the garden. And it is not redeemed until the cross. It can't be. Because sin is too, bra- too big of a problem. You see that in Genesis. No amount of restoration, no chosen family is sufficient in the face of sin. You see it in, Le- in Leviticus. No amount of laws, before you despair because of Friday's news, no amount of laws can ever make us holy. We can't live up to perfection. Leviticus points that out. Exodus points that out. The prophets only condemn us. The restored nation still is insufficient. You go through scripture moment after scripture moment after scripture moment and you see the same thing you see with the flood which shows that man remains sinful. Peter can walk around with Christ for three years and still need the cross. Judas can walk with Christ and take his life in despair. Because man needs Christ's work at the cross. The Bible shows God to be a faithful and just redeemer. And it all either points towards that or back to that. Or in the Gospels, it describes that. God is a faithful and just redeemer. And in the flood account, God uses one crazy floating zoo cruise to caution us from underestimating the evilness of sin. And to make it clear that a simple reboot isn't the solution, there is one solution. And one solution only. We need Jesus.